Welcome to the Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose podcast. This podcast showcases inspiring appraisers and professionals from the industry who are leaders in their field. How did they get to where they are? What have they learned along the way? And what do they do now for their teams, their clients, and the industry? Your host is real estate investor, entrepreneur, and appraiser, Michael Hobbs. Well, welcome back to Parusings, The Power of Values. Once again, we are excited to have another industry peer who brings another perspective that many of us are unaware of or might not be familiar with. And I think one of the fascinating things about Mark is that uh, he didn't come up through the appraisal profession, although he's been around the real estate industry for a significant amount of time. And I think you're going to find as well that there are a lot of interesting takeaways from not only his life experience, but his professional experience and his uh, fascinating view of the future. So with that, uh, Mark, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Michael, thanks for having me. It's really fun to be on. Wonderful. Well, you know, my opening question for everybody is, so Mark, from the perspective of real estate appraisal and valuation, uh, were you born this way or how did you uh, follow, what yellow brick road did you follow to get the, over? Yeah, definitely not born this way, Michael. I <laughs> fell, tripped and fell backwards over a bunch of pans in the kitchen and kind of landing with a really loud crash would probably be the better way of describing my entry in. So I was uh, born a technologist coming out of college. I, I worked actually in the mobile industry. So I was with a company that created the very first wireless email applications uh, and doing wow. wireless mobile applications for, do you remember the Palm Pilot? Oh, Absolutely. Okay. I had a Palm Pilot. That was that thing was transformational. Oh, time ago. So, so I, I, was, I was a young kid coming out of college, had a great chance to land a, a biz dev role with this, uh, this company. And we uh, took that product, sold it to Palm, uh, to BlackBerry, partnered with BlackBerry, Windows, Mobile, all those old devices that you remember that were the precursors to smartphones and the wow. When Handspring uh, was was formed by the founders of Palm, that was really the first kind of smartphone that combined how you take a BlackBerry and combine it with a phone. There you go. You got that device and then everyone started following. And obviously the iPhone was born out of that a few years later. So being kind of on the front seat of watching that, that whole applications initiative during that time, um, one of the companies I was involved with, we actually created the very first wireless MLS application and we patented it. Holy smokes. So to give people some sense of history here, because for others, they're like, well, Mark, I remember when there wasn't an internet. And other people are like, you mean there was something before the internet? So what what kind of time frame are we talking about with the first wireless? Yeah, we're talking about the early 2000s here. So, you know, it, again, on a, really on a handspring device. On a, yes. On a trio, you know, and yes, on oh, Blackberry. The Blackberry, imagine that we're, we're out there showing agents, hey, you can <laughs> you can actually search the MLS from this device and show it at an open house. Like you can say, what are you looking for? And you put in the parameters and bang, we're pulling up MLS data, right? And showing pictures and all the rest of it. That that This is the whole time the MLS was starting to digitize and go into you know, real estate listings being digitized on and then coming over mobile like that. So pretty fun time to do that. And work with that side of the industry. So I worked in the real estate and also the mortgage side of the industry for, oh, really? for quite a while. I fell into, to answer your original question, I fell into the AMC world, like like a lot of people do, by stroke of uh, or, or dint, dint of circumstance. We yes. were in a company that was a settlement company. It had a title organization, did, did credit. And when uh, HPCC came out, they said, we want to do appraisals. And so they opened up a, an appraisal company. And I pivoted from my role to help them start that that AMC and turned out to be really good at it in terms of 
just getting lenders to understand the value of it and then, you know, sign up with us. So that was my foray into that world. Very different world working with appraisers as opposed to working with real estate and mortgage. But I've come to uh, over the, you know, the, the little over, I think, 13 years now that I've worked really 15 years that I've been involved in the in the AMC world through, through several different lives. I've, I've really come to make friends with so many appraisers, come to really respect the profession, to understand a lot of what appraisers like and also fear sure. about, about change and about technology. And, you know, that really informed what we did in Center in terms of, you know, how we, we rolled out our vision of modernization. I love that. I mean, and given what you've done at In Center, and I think what's, you know, one of the beautiful things about this podcast is, you know, you graduated uh, from university. You were headed in a particular direction, as you touched on, you know, ended up starting out in technology. You're on the West Coast, so that's kind of a natural place where that could have come from. So here you go from university, you get into a technology business. So did you stay in technology businesses? I mean, how, I mean, how did things kind of develop for you as a, a recent college grad and a young professional? Sometimes opportunities come your way. There are some people who seek things, and then there, there's people who have it thrust upon them. So, in my particular case, right, I was on a, I was actually, you know, I was, I, I was a business degree. I, I was looking to oh, either be, okay. be, be an accountant or do something like that. And then I joined a tech startup right, right as the dot com revolution just. Wow. Yes, right. so 1998. <laughs> I take the rocket ride, right? I mean, I'm. You can imagine, I'm, I'm doing classes college classes i'm taking a final and then i'm or i'm i'm in another city doing a business deal and i have to fly overnight to go back home to california to take my final <laughs> next day i'm in a room with people twice my age oh my man talk about talk about learning a lot i got great exposure and great learning i was also pretty snot-nosed at the time right so i i can i can look back over some of how i interacted and and, and understand right okay you know these some of these guys were really kind and they were putting up with me and helping me learn to be a better businessman, right? Just oh, of course. be a man, not a boy, right? Yeah. <laughs> In terms of how you interact. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny, you know, you, you, your life experience changes you. And, and uh, you know, now I'm kind of the guy that sits back in meetings and I try not to say as much and, and listen as much as I talk. Back then I was pretty much all talk, right? Because you-, you yeah. You're in your 20s trying to get something out. But you learn from those things. You learn from your mistakes, especially. And I believe as long as you're becoming a better person and you're able to look in the mirror and go, did I learn something today that moved me forward to being a better person, not just a better business person? If you did that, then you're making progress. That's a huge amount of progress to make. And and to have you know uh, that foresight and uh, early wisdom. And I commend you for not only sharing that, but also kind of looking back and being able to see it. So you you get this opportunity to be involved in mobile right from the early start. Um, what happened to that company and what came next for you? Did you stay in that company or did you move from company to company around Silicon Valley or how did that go? Yeah. Basically, as the companies got acquired, I moved, right? Oh, okay. In a few cases, like any set of startups, right, they failed. And then you just move on to another company and start life over again. Then, of course, as I started getting older and getting into the marrying age cycle, it started being less about startups and more about finding more established companies. So that's kind of where I, I landed in the AMC world into an established company. Sure. Went to work for uh, you know a number of well-known companies in the space, mm-hmm. uh, moving and learning about valuation and, and just taking my, my sales and business development prowess with me. And then I always had that product management and tech background to be able to fall back on. And so what I would find is that as I would join a company in a, biz- a business role, 
whatever initiatives that they were thinking about doing with appraisal or technology or whatever, I would start having an impact on that because I was able to blend what the salesperson sees with what, how to talk to an engineer and how to put that together into a product vision that actually made sense. And so that's what uh, I ended up doing by default sort of in, in all of these roles that I was in. And then once I, you know, once Incenter came along and recruited me to, in this particular case, they they had an AMC and they needed someone to come and lead it. That was my my entry point into Incenter was just to run the, the AMC. But then right as we were doing that, we were looking at this technology uh, with uh, around virtual inspections. And just as I joined the company, basically, right, COVID was a thing. It was hitting. We couldn't get a, appraisers to get into properties. A lot of times people wouldn't let them in. And we were looking at modernization. Of course, you know, back then that was what, three years ago, uh, two and a half years ago, the, the hybrid was already there. And, you know, we figured the hybrid would have obviously a, a place in the future, but it was still in pilot back then. And the thought that we had as we were talking with our appraisers was at least the appraisers in our panel were like, you know, if, if we were to have you be able to do something with the house and do a, a technology-based appraisal, what would that look like? I mean, you know, and, and what we were getting at the time was a lot of pushback on, well, one thing I, I would like to do is I'd like to be able to inspect the property. You know, I don't necessarily want to have somebody going out and collecting data for me and I'd like to see it for myself and be able to verify it and do that. So we embarked on something radically different, right? Which was, okay, how do we get an appraisal? How do we get an appraiser to be able to do an appraisal and do everything that they pretty much do when they're there in person, but just to be able to do it remotely, you know, and we were doing that looking forward to a future time, right? Where, or a pandemic might return, or you might have lockdown, or you might have people, property inaccessibility or whatever, right? And can you do this without the drive time, without the gas and all of that? So that was the, that was basically a culmination of taking all of my experience from 20 years ago with mobile, right? Being able to understand that aspect of it and push it into what I know about appraisal. And of course, had a lot of help and a lot of friends that are well known in our, our world come alongside me to do that. Sure. You know, most notably, our, our friend Josh Wallet was a, a huge contributor to helping uh, us understand the appraisal profession's mm-hmm. desire to be part of the inspection. So we started really looking at how can we do that? That's so, and I'm still doing it. We're, we're not done, right? We're we're looking at the world and going, okay, it's changing. It's really, really changing. How can we keep appraisers at the center of that world? That's that still drives us, right? And uh, as the tech gets better and uh, as other approaches come into play, that's all good, in my view, for appraisers. Is it just how do you get maximum adoption, but how do you also get maximum buy-in? And that's really kind of where we're at now to say, look, there's a lot of different ways potentially to slice the onion, but how do we keep appraisers at the center of that conversation? So that's that's still the driving force. Well, I appreciate that, Mark. I think an interesting thing and, and one of the differentiators for your background versus a lot of people in, that have been able to uh, join us as guests is you, as you touched on, had uh, got experience in product, uh, product management, you got a background in technology companies, and then sales and business development. I think it'd be really uh, helpful for people to get a sense of how as a young professional did you develop or was it the company or was it you in terms of developing your ability and skills around business development and sales? Because that's one thing that a lot of people in the profession uh, don't have a lot of strength in and people outside the profession don't realize that that is such a valuable skill to the profession. So you being able to share on that, 
really is a wonderful spotlight and a reveal that uh, people aren't aware of. Yeah. I So you've heard the expression, we're all salespeople, right? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Some of us are born to it naturally. Uh, I certainly would consider myself one of those. I, I From a young age, I've always liked to speak and talk to people. I, as you know, you and I met at a conference where yeah. I was speaking, right? And at an appraiser conference, right? And I love the teaching aspect of it, right? My I teach kids on the side, right, in other aspects of life. And that's that's always part of who I am is being a teacher. But you learn to be a teacher by being a student. So by sitting under better people, more experienced people, and understanding how they approach conversations, how they approach communication, if you're always learning, then you're absorbing something. So, And then you make it your own, right? You take the style, uh, you take your style, and you combine it with what you've learned to make it your own. Not everybody is a natural salesperson or a natural talker, and that's okay. I think it's just like not everybody is a natural operator either, right? I mean, one of the things that I like to say is the sales and biz dev side came easy to me. Yes. The operations side, I know about operations, but if you say, hey, Mark, I want you to take this process and manage it down to the nth degree, that's not something that I like to do. I can do it, but I... I would much prefer to create the overall vision, get the right people in here, delegate that, and let them run with it and support. Right? That's that. So you you have to kind of know what your your psychology is to. For appraisers, I think I've met the spectrum. Right? I mean, I have met appraisers like yourself and others who are just you have the personality part of it in spades. You've got the the sales ability, and then you also have right that ability to be technical. And I've met a lot of appraisers who are very technical and some degree struggle a little bit with how do I sell myself? How do I communicate with people? And I would say that part of that, to go a little spiritual here, the part of it also is deeper than that. It's not about just learning the skill, right? It's about who are you as a person and what's in your heart? If in your heart and deep down in who you are, right? For me, there's a very spiritual element of this, right? Which is being a better person and not just trying to be a better person for the sake of being a better person, but doing so because there is a driver in my life that's a, that's a higher power than me. And there's there's an expectation and there's a duty to be that way. So even though like everybody else, I can fail, I can get angry, I can get frustrated, I can make mistakes. I know that every single day, I as a person need to be better for the people around me, for the employees I manage, for my kids, my family, my wife, right? And if I am progressing that way as a person, I'm seeing, hey, Mark, you were too quick to be angry. You snapped when you shouldn't have. You should have held your tongue and listened. Yeah, or maybe something offensive was said to you. And your normal reaction would have been to punch right back, right? And that's where you need to look in yourself and say, okay, how is there a better way to respond? And is there a way that's productive that will lead to a better outcome? I've had to learn that lesson, I think, like all of us the hard way like hitting my head on the wall and smashing my face into it over and over again to figure out that the result needed to, needs to be better, but you need to initiate. When you have that change in your heart and who you are changes, then everything else I think follows from that. So how, how I interact in a sales environment or in a, a sales conversation or a business development meeting, or if I'm dealing with an appraiser on a hard issue or dealing with a lender defending an appraiser from a, you know an issue that they feel is a problem, all of those things are part of being a salesperson, right? It comes from find consensus, get the interest separated from the position. So this is kind of a negotiating tactic, right? A lot of people don't understand this tactic, but it's something very important to understand when you're negotiating with anybody. Understand what the interest is behind the position. If someone says, 
I'm taking position X and you're on position Y, right? In order to find that middle ground, you have to understand why are they taking position X? What is the interest there? Is it financial? Is it economic? Is it survival? Is it personal? Whatever that is, if you can figure that out, interest behind the position, then instead of trying to negotiate the position, you're now negotiating with that person's interest. So a common one, for example, in our industry, a lender might tell us, hey, we need the appraisal price in a state to be X. And I look at that and go, okay, so for me to make money and also be able to service this person properly and pay the appraiser a reasonable wage that actually is fair to them, right? Then the price has to be Y, right? Not X. But why do they want X? And so instead of saying, sorry, we can't do it, or hey, no appraisers are going to do it for that fee or whatever, the first thing I ask is, tell me about your historical pricing. Why did you guys select X? And what's the driver behind that? You know, Are you getting pushback from customers? Are your brokers kind of screaming at you when they hear, hear a different price? You know what I mean? You're, you're trying to suss out what's that interest behind that position. Got it. Once I have that, then it's easier to talk to them and it's much easier to represent our side and frankly, the side of the appraisers behind us. I can then paint that triangle of price, quality, turn time, pick any two. It's a practical thing here to show <laughs> your example that I don't want to shortchange our appraisers, but I also don't want to ignore that lender's real fear. There's something there, right? And that's what sales is in a nutshell. It really is parlaying between interest and position and trying to find wherever you can, trying to find a win-win. Yeah, and no, I think that's an important, what we call uh, upper level uh, skill that a lot of people may not may have a sense of, but they may not have had the privilege of have training in that or being in an environment where they get to observe that occurring and that both being actively involved in something that's going on, but that ability to also step back, much like the different, you know, some points in sports, you're on the field playing at other time, maybe even during that exact same game, you're actually on the sideline observing and you might be going back in or you might be staying out on the sideline, but you're still fully a part of it. I think what's also interesting about that because your background came up through technology and through business development, establishing relationships, in some cases, significant relationships across continents, if I'm not mistaken, which is phenomenal. I think people would really appreciate kind of hearing that experience. I mean, you're not just, so it wasn't as though you were sitting in the West Coast and you were just talking to people on the West Coast. You were literally, in some cases, involved globally. That would be fascinating to maybe hear a story or two of your experience along cultivating those type of um, opportunities, relationships, you know, growing business. Yeah. And I'm kind of doing the same thing right now. I, we talked earlier, I, I'm, I'm now on the East Coast. Yes, you are. Right. Which is a whole new world for me. Right. So moved here during the pandemic and I'm loving it and I'm living in Carolina now. Right. But anyone who talks to me here, it's obvious that I'm not in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's all about learning a new culture, learning how it's done here in the South based on it's very different for someone who, who grew up in Southern California, right? But again, all the same skills apply. So one thing I would encourage people to do is to travel. That's the first thing. It, it, it is one thing to watch stuff on YouTube. Yes. It is entirely another to put yourself in another culture, in something in a place that's completely foreign and just roll with it, right? So I had the privilege, my, my parents you know, were immigrants to this country, uh, as was I. I had the privilege of a young age my parents made the sacrifices to take my sister and I back to India every couple of years. And we did that growing up. So 
there were a number of summers I got to spend in India, right, at, at a very young age. Uh, one thing that that actually, you talk about perspective. Yes. I can remember this clearly, landing in Bombay, you know, which <laughs> is an interesting city in and of itself, and then walking out of the airport. It's at nighttime, right, because it was a 25-hour flight or whatever. Yes. And I'm, I think I was seven, maybe, six mm-hmm. or seven, and holding my dad's hand. And as we walk out of the airport to try to find a cab here at night, I look to the left and there's a pile of men, okay, like grown men. Yeah. They're all wearing pants that don't fit them. They're all barefoot. They have shirts, short sleeve shirts like this one on, but all grimy and dirty. They're all grimy and dirty. They're all lying on top of each other. Outside like, of the airport. Right there. And they're clearly workers. Mm-hmm. They're just lying on top of each other. I asked my dad, dad, why are they lying on top of each other like that. The guy at the bottom must not be able to breathe, but they're literally like pancake. And he was telling me, you know, that's how they keep warm because those men are probably homeless. They don't actually have a home. They're just working, right? Day, day laboring or whatever. And and this is, and I tell you, you, you see that and that made an impression on me for the first time. And it made me appreciate America. So that's the first thing I'll say. When I came back, I really, and we, we went to, went to a McDonald's and went through a drive through I was like, yeah, didn't see anything like that back in India, at least no, at the time. Right? No, not at all. <laughs> you go today, you can get that, right? But yes. Back then, you know, 30 years ago, no. It, 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 so oh it gave goodness. me an immediate appreciation for that. But then you talk about culture and interaction, right? So fast forwarding to business, right? I remember, I'll give you a great example. Uh, this one was a shocker for me, but I, it was my first expose to Japanese culture. So this is back again during, during my wireless time. We had a mobile application that was basically a precursor to something like a Twitter or a Facebook. Oh, okay. And so it, we were presenting to NTT Docomo, which is the largest um, Japanese wireless carrier, right? And Docomo was very, very well known in, the, in those times for really pushing the envelope on mm-hmm. social apps and things like that on mobile. And so they came, they flew from Japan to meet us here. And so we, we were in a conference room with them. They, they all walked in, all bowed, all shook hands. We had been instructing them to bow when you meet them. And the guy who was the, the really, the real, the real boss, the real right? boss, it, he sat down they, we sat down. His surrogates were actually the ones talking and negotiating with us. And I noticed the entire time, like literally when the meeting started, this is what this guy did. Okay. And th- remember, this is like a senior VP of Docomo. Right? Okay. This is exactly what he did. So right now, for people that can't see you, because this is a, uh, this is audio, not video, is you closing your eyes and kind of putting your hands on your chest and just kind of leaning back. Looked like he was totally like nodded off and he was just taking a nap in the corner, like, kind of, like, like your grandpa in your armchair. Oh my! And I was looking at this. I kept looking every like five minutes. I was glancing at this guy, going, "He's asleep." Like literally, he's not even paying attention. He's he's totally asleep. I was like, "Okay, well, whatever." <laughs> kind of awkward and weird for us, right? Again, remember we're 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 kind of in our mid twenties, like we're a young startup. Just like, oh, all of those guys are like, you know, we're Silicon Valley. We're just like, ah, you got to be like that. And then there's this guy in the meeting just sleeping. We're like, okay, well, wow. Either he's bored out of his mind, or he just went to sleep, and this <laughs> meeting's going nowhere, right? <laughs> An hour later, we get up. We okay. He suddenly kind of gets up and and he bows and walks out. And then I I turned to one of our advisors who who had arranged the meeting, and I was like, "What just happened? Yes, why was that guy sleeping in our meeting?" Mm-hmm. He's like, he looks at me. And he's a little Mark. He wasn't sleeping. He was listening. Oh, of course. I was I was like, oh, because. That's that's what they, these high level guys. That's what they do. They they have their people talk for them. But he was listening to absolutely everything, 
and making decisions right at the time. I, as a Westerner, was looking at that and going, this guy's being rude. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know? So, so just, to, you know, since our audience is primarily appraisers, right, let's talk about that. And those of you who appraise in areas like LA or wherever you have a diverse cultural, you know, cultural populations, you kind of understand some of this or you experience it, right? But people interact very, very differently. What, what is acceptable to one group of people is offensive to another. It's not like you have to learn every language, but by understanding some level of customs and cues that certain cultures give off. Like for example, when I traveled to Manila, you know, and, and, uh, hey, what, what, what year or decade? That was in the nineties. In the nineties. Uh, okay. She actually went there, went there for the first time on a missions trip. I was playing uh, basketball as well oh. with, uh, with athletes in action. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah. You're a, you're a, a AIA. And then yeah. you go to the, um, you go to the Philippines in the late nineties. Yeah. It, 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 and, uh, in the mid, in actually in the mid nineties, but mid-90s. the first thing I noticed is everybody, men and women were kind of like doing, again, you're, you're, most of you just can't see this, but they're just, they're doing this. Yes. They're flexing their eyes. Yes. Me, yeah. Like right? your eyebrows were popping up. They're like, what's going up? up? <laughs> as soon as they made eye contact, eyebrow pops up. Like it's like, it's the same look that we give in here in America. We'd say like, oh, you're super shocked or you're, yes. you're trying to ogle somebody, right? Yeah. You're like, <laughs> like your eyes, yeah. I was like, did you see a ghost? Like your eyes get really yeah, big or, and your eyebrows go really high. Or wow. She's really, you know, really, really cute. And you click. Someone caught your attention. You that. Yes. And, and so I was like, why is we doing this to me? And then I realized, oh. Uh, like I talked to someone else. They're like, "This is how they say hi." They're saying oh, hi. To you. Really? They're just greeting you. They're they're just like we would wave. That's their wave. They're just they don't use their hands. They use their uh, eye expression. That's fantastic. So again, if you were ever to appraise the home of a, a Filipino, Filipino family, right, and you Filipino, sure. a traditional Filipino family, and you know maybe the maybe the kids are Americanized, and so they they say hi and they greet you, and then you know you're introduced to someone older in the home, they might just do that with your their eyebrows at you and you're like what to your earlier question and just to kind of wrap that you know it, it travel a lot you know if you can it, get out of your culture get out of your cult your comfort zone meet learn new people new things and it'll give you an appreciation for not only how to interact better with people but also just to appreciate the way that things are done uh you know in, in different cultures i think it's all it's all I think that that's fascinating. And having start, I started traveling when I was nine internationally playing uh, sports. So uh, for a whole different reason, but it is so wild as you've touched on to recognize for myself that look the way I view the world is the way who I'm surrounded by. And as I expand the circles of my interaction, it expands my understanding and awareness. I I, I very much appreciate that. I'm, I mean, we happen to be in Chicago. We work in a lot of markets, but we happen to primarily be in Chicago, and there's a lot of different cultures here. And I, yeah. I remember the first time I walked into a home that was in Chinatown and they did not speak English, which I was familiar with, but in different cultures that didn't speak English. But in this case, I blew all the cues, like the, <laughs> yeah. like the, like the bow and like, like or, or, or greeting and, and really the solemnness of it and the what word will I use? The um, preciousness of being in, like essentially um, invited into the home. The sanctity of, of their house, yes. I didn't understand the importance of the number four and the direction of the sun. Like I just, 
I mean, I learned it quick. Yeah. We reached out for help and it's a benefit of, of relationships and mentors. And I'm like, Hey, um, I just went and had this assignment. I think I've missed some things. So like, and they're like, well, what was the address and what was the unit number? And then where is the property? A lot of Chicago's North South in the, in the city is both in yeah. the suburbs. Like which way does it face? And I was like, I, I didn't pay attention to these things. So like, well, Michael, why would you? You're like, you just don't know any of it. So I, I'm a huge fan to uh, exposure. It really opens yeah. up one's eyes. And I think that's pretty amazing given so much of your experience literally spans continents, you know, whether it was the work that you were doing, negotiating with, you know, Japanese or even Chinese entities while you're here. I mean, you almost had stardom had you been associated with MySpace. I mean, some of the people here actually remember what MySpace was. That's a great story. You want to just give a little snippet of that? Yeah. So just to, to kind of, we, we were, we were like many startups a little bit too early, but we had, um, this was the mobile piece of it, but we, we had developed an application that actually could slice through populations in seconds and actually match you with other people yeah. based on like kind interests and your personality types. So the, you know, the idea was if, uh, just to kind of flush that out a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it was, this was three or four years before MySpace and five years before Facebook, right? So we were definitely early. Um, I, I think had we waited and done this four years later, we would have probably gotten hundreds of millions of dollars of VC money. And, you know, who knows? Maybe, <laughs> maybe we could have been kind of like a Facebook. I don't know. But, 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 but you know, the, what we did there is we said, all right, because we were young, right? We, we were all Silicon Valley sure. you know, people, right? And we, we were like, all right, so meeting people is your biggest thing. Everyone was moving there, right? And so you, you don't have any friends. You, you, you know, how do you connect with people? And so we had actually built out this site called freeforlunch.com, mm-hmm. which was our test bed for the tech. We actually had like five, 600 people sign up oh, wow. and just virally sign up and put in their profile and then meet people not for dating, right? It was, yeah, yeah. It was for activity, right? Like, like hey, meet, it was like today we know it as meetup.com or something like that. Yeah, I'm 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 in the basketball and yeah. novels. And uh, how do I meet people who like basketball and novels so I can hang out on weekends with, with cool people? Or I like deep dish pizza or I like dim sug or I like something else, right. you know? Now, now the trick, what we, what the algorithm that we built and patented, which is still to this day amazing to me, even 20 years later, I think about it, right? Is if you, if you take the, Take the dating model. Like if you've ever been on a, like on a match.com or, or something like any. Well, you know, I'm happily married, Mark, but thanks for <laughs> everybody else out there. They might know a little bit more about this than me, but please explain it. Prior to, about that, prior to being married, if you've ever been on, if you've ever been on one of those sites, okay, so you can't just put in and say, I'm a male looking for a female, okay, as an example. Well, okay, that's great, but there's like 50,000 males and 50,000 females there, right? Are you going to, are you going to get, you know, interest from all of them? Or how do you find, how do you find like the five or six people that might be the best possible fit for you to think about dating? The answer is more questions. So, okay. Now you have to start asking this whole litany of questions, right? About who you are, what you like, where you live, what are your interests, blah, 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 blah. And if you've been on those sites, you know, it can sometimes be many dozens to hundreds of those questions. God. But they're, at, they're making you go through that for a reason. Because as you sit there for two hours filling out these profiles and answering these questions, yes. they are narrowing the field, right? To try to get you sort of to the top 100 matches that you could start browsing and then potentially connect with. Well, 
we realized that people would not do that with each other for anything other than sex and love. Mm. Because that's kind of a driver. You sit in front of your computer and you're willing to do that for two and a half, three hours. Why? Because you have this underlying interest. Remember my interest position? (laughs) Your interest is, I want to find a match. I want to find a date. I want to find a girlfriend or find a wife. You're willing to do that, you know, if you're a guy sitting in that position and vice versa, if you're, if you're someone else, are you willing to do that for say meeting someone for basketball and coffee? Probably probably not. not. (laughs) Okay. Especially if it's a stranger or someone random, you're trying to make new friends. You're not going to sit there for hours and hours and do this. Okay. So how can you do this in eight questions? Oh, fascinating. That's what our technology solved. We actually had a professor from Stanford on our board who was a psychology expert and a bunch of other people. We created this algorithm, these heuristics that would allow us to ask basically eight. We we, we had eight questions that we could ask anyone. And these were questions. These were not questions like you would you would normally think of. But uh, for example, one of the scenarios was you're sitting in a movie theater. A fire breaks out. Do you quietly get up and leave? Do you tell the person next to you to tell someone in the theater that the fire is, is suddenly breaking out and then quietly get up and leave? Do you stand up in the aisle and yell, fire, everybody get out, right? Or, oh my God, we're all going to die. And then you run out, right? <laughs> but <laughs> by, by answering the, the question, right? Interesting. And answering a series of, a short series of questions very similar to that, we could create a pretty accurate psychographic profile of who you were. That's fascinating. And based on that, Okay. Yes. We could match you, you know, in a population of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people, we could match you with the top five, six, or seven people who would be most like you, most a fit for you, right? That, and that's why our, so our portal, when it launched in San Francisco and in Washington, DC, because think about that, right? DC, every, every two to four years, it all changes, right? All changes, yeah. New people, new interns, new whoever coming in to work with some congressman or whatever. Don't know anybody, right? They're, they're, and in those two places, our application become really viral and people would use it because they wanted to meet people, right? So our thought was, this is again, precursor to mobile apps and smartphones, right? How do we get people to use text messaging and, others to, uh, and other interests to, to meet up for things? And then how do you monetize that? That's what our mobile app did. And mm-hmm. like I said, I think we were a few years too early because our, all the investors we ever presented to after you know, we 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 raised a series, uh, a, a capital, sure. uh, seed capital, and then a Series A, but we couldn't get past that point. But because once we started to try to scale it, most of the investors we were talking to could not understand and couldn't believe why would people meet random people they don't know? Why would they not <laughs> want? <laughs> who, who? Why? You guys are nuts. Oh You're crazy. Goodness. Nobody will do this, <laughs> right? <laughs> Five years later, some kid at at Harvard. Starts a website that does exactly that. Yep, and it it, it becomes this thing we know as Facebook, right? <laughs> well, and, and you think about when I mean the same pitch when Uber first came out. It's like, why would someone ever get in a stranger's car? Like, you grew up car, right? told, like, do not talk to strangers. Don't get in a stranger's car. And that's exactly what you know. So it's what we all do now, right? We just call lifts and Uber. So you think about even the psychological change that has occurred yes. in people over yes. the last twenty years. That's a whole nother topic we could spend hours and hours deconstructing on a podcast. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, right? that might be a good repeat opportunity. But what's fascinating about this, again, your technology background, your willingness to both 
as you said, you know, being young, talk a lot, but then also start to listen and observe that same being ahead of technologies, you know, this theme that continues to show up in, in your career. And therefore mm-hmm. one of these being early on, it's like, Hey, there was this thing called a Blackberry, which would really kind of look like taking your laptop and shrinking it down to the size, right. of literally your palm. And it had a keyboard on it and it had a screen and it was transformational and it was uh, wonderfully addictive. Um, but from yes. that standpoint, you said, Hey, well, wow, could we do a mobile MLS? Can we actually bring that access to the palm of your hand? Which really got you, I think back, was it the early, was that still the early 2000s or mid 2000s? Yeah, yeah. When you start getting involved with some of the big players out there, like and then they might recognize a name like a Coldwell Banker or others. What was that interesting conversation like when you're approaching people who don't even understand the technology, offering a solution that they didn't even know was possible? So it was actually productive in uh, a lot of ways because real estate professionals, you know, especially the people who are heads of real estate companies, while you would say the average real estate agent is very similar to maybe the average appraiser just in terms of, of I've done it this way and yeah. changing it a little bit hard. When they see something that actually measurably impacts their life though, mm. that's where it becomes a lot easier to talk. So you know, those kinds of companies that you talked about, right, saw the potential of it and realized, right, at some point in time, this is going to be the way people actually walk into houses. Yes. Already armed, already looking at it, and this is the way they're going to do it. So those conversations were actually quite fruitful because, you know, and and we were able to 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 make some traction with that that app uh, with with a, a number of players in real estate because of the fact that people were looking three or four or five. Uh, yes, I already sent them some of the stuff, even though I'm on a podcast. Yeah. So three to four to five years from now, they were thinking that far ahead. And I think that's very instructive for all of us today, right? Is are you, are you thinking three to four to five years ahead that's, in terms of where you're going to be, right? Because they yeah. certainly were and they are, right? Even now, if you look at real estate, right? Like everybody, everybody sort of whiplashed to Zillow yeah. uh, when Zillow came out and tried to do their own version of Zillow. And to, the, to that extent, almost every real estate company has something like Zillow right now, even though Zillow would still be considered the leader in the space. There's really robust alternatives and most of the real estate companies actually have their own version of, of that and they're they're trying to use that to to mine data and to capture the interest of consumers long term. The next steps are always the most important thing to look at. You can't just be stodgy and look at your profession like like switching examples. Yeah, I couldn't just stay on the fact that it'll always be appraisals or that people will always be able to get into houses. Right there has to be there has to be some some element of of me looking at our business saying. We have to also plan for future scenarios. It also means not shutting yourself off to things, right? So, for example, even though I picked a a path that was more based on uh, on a virtual inspection or an appraiser, that does not mean that I am not looking at the hybrid, right, or its value. You have to be able to to look at yourself and say, is this always the only answer, or are there should we be covering bases, or should we look at alternative solutions? To kind of round that back to your podcast listeners, I would just tell them the same thing, right? It, it, they're business owners too. You know, maybe they don't run, you know, a company as large as Incenter, but that's okay. You still run a company or you run a business, or even if you're working for somebody else as a trainee or, uh, or, or as a, a new appraiser still working under a firm, you're still running or being part of that business. So you should look mm-hmm. at what's three or four years from now and try to push your firm in that direction, right? Go sit down with your 
with your owner or your leader and say, listen, I think we need to look at X, Y, and Z because we might be called to do these things. If the answers you get that you get back are, no, we'll never do that. We're never going to change. We're always going to stay the way we are. Yes. You know, then it should spur something in you to say, okay, well, maybe, maybe I need to do something different long-term. Maybe I need to strike out on my own. Maybe I need to have a plan that in two years I'm going to be here. <laughs> yes. But, but you, you have, you have to start thinking about how your business and how you personally are going to evolve based on those changes. I appreciate you sharing that. I think that has nothing to do specifically with the industry and it has everything to do with the industry, but it really, more importantly, touching on something you shared a little earlier, there's a sense of what is your purpose in life? I mean, heck, it's uh, it's biblical even, you know, without vision, yeah. people perish. So what is it for you as an individual, maybe you as a person responsible for the lives or mouths or hearts of others, what is it that you're doing to ensure that um, you're you're not still doing the same thing in 10 years? Because as we know, and it's a bit uh, over overrun, but it's like the only thing constant is change. And from that standpoint, I think what's fascinating, because you're one of our few guests who can speak to what's it like? I mean, so you you get exposure to this, you end up having an opportunity to work for another well-known company in the industry that represents multiple value points to clients around title and appraisal and technology services. What's it like sitting down in those kind of conversations? Because a lot of people from an appraisal standpoint have no idea, just because they're not exposed to it, and they probably never will be, that yes, it's an important piece of our process, but from a lending conversation, there's a lot of important pieces that go on. And you were responsible for developing relationships with many clients, providing yeah. those kind of bundled services. Absolutely. What does that conversation sound like at just a high level without, of course, you don't need to name any names. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a great question. And I'm going to give you an internal and an external perspective on that question. Okay. So the internal perspective is something I've learned from my boss, who's the president of all the in-center companies. Also, our companies are structured that we have our, our ultimate parent. All of us are presidents running our own companies. Oh, so we do. We have autonomy when we, we run our own companies. However, we're all part of the same team. And so my boss is very intentional. This is the internal part. Very intentional about getting us together regularly. Mm. We don't just live on Zoom, right? So every couple of months, we go to a city you know, one of the host cities, as we call them. Sure. We, we, we move around <laughs> to, to the different companies at HQs and, and do that. Or sometimes we'll even pick a random spot that no one's from and just go there. Just go there. <laughs> we, we're there and it's an intense two days. It's wonderful. But we, we, we sit in a room for about eight hours. We go through everything, right? Strategy, financials, all the rest. But one of the most important parts about, I would say the two most important parts of that are not just giving updates to each other on business and all the rest. And finding out how we can cross sell and, and support each other, which is it's very important. Yeah, it's important. The two things that are my most favorites about that. One, we have a crazy ideas session. Really? And my boss runs that. Mm -hmm. He basically says, all right, close your notebooks. Here's a whiteboard. Put out your ideas on how we can grow this year, you know, or how you can help grow with someone else's business this year or whatever. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how harebrained or crazy it is, it goes on the board. <laughs> and we discuss it. We actually have these crazy idea sessions and they're like a solid hour, hour and a half. To, and, and it's amazing what comes out of that. Yes. Right. I mean, what we're doing in certified listings and, and working with the real estate community came out of that, right? Just the, the idea of, okay, 
how can we preset a listing so that it basically has title ready to go? It's clean before it even gets on the MLS. Oh, wow. You're not going to have that train wreck hit you, you know, when people find out, oh my God, there's a solar lien on there. It's derailing the whole transaction. No, but how can we do this before it even lists? And who do we work with to do that, right? Yes. Same thing with valuation. We're working on those components too. How do we, even if we can't necessarily pre-value a property, can we get all the data in there that allows an appraiser to just have it and not have any surprises and be able to do something with it, right? So- all of those those kinds of crazy ideas came out of the session. I would encourage listeners here, whether it's internally with your your teammates yes. or, or with, with a few friends that you might have locally, have a crazy idea session every now and then, right? <laughs> That's it and make it a regular thing to question yourself, question the business and what could we do better and how could we do it? Even if the outcome is desired, but the way to get there is kind of crazy, harebrained, or unclear. Yes. By just articulating the fact that you have the outcome, and this is what you might want to do yes. to make it better, mm-hmm. it starts getting you thinking about creative ways to get there. So that's that's an internal. Internal. Got it. The, the external piece comes with listening. So we don't just walk into a client, a lender, and open our suitcase and say, here's the 15 different products we have. Yes. Which one? Which ones would you like? <laughs> we well, we what we do is we we actually uh, do what we call enterprise reviews. So like we we and I, I love there's a large bank that I won't name the name of course but but I we we walked in our our enterprise team set that review just give me one quick second we'll yep. pause yep. here on your podcast let me just let my team know I'm a little late to this meeting no I appreciate that yeah coming on fascinating perspective that you get to share that others don't necessarily have exposure to. So this helps people start to understand we're all cogs in some wheel somewhere at some time. And in this profession, that's definitely the case. So here you are in a conversation of an enterprise review, which encompasses multiple needs. It's supposed to be about sales, right? You think that. You think that going in, but it's not what it's about. Got it. What we do is we say, we want to find out about you. Yes. Tell us about your goals, your desires. What do you want to accomplish this year? What What are your three-year goals as an organization? Your five-year goals? And we spend the first half an hour, 45 minutes in something like that, just listening, whiteboarding it out, going around the room to each leader at that at that lender and saying, what keeps you up at night? What what do you want to see change? You know, what are some problems that you see now and where strategically do you want to be in the future? Yes. Then part two of that meeting is, okay, how can we provide solutions that might help? And I love that the one story that I get told by our enterprise team is they walked into a very large financial institution, sat down, and the the person in charge of the meeting basically said, look, just so you know, we don't really need another AMC, another title company, or whatever. There's a lot we, of them out We there. really don't need anything that you guys have, and we're not really here to to buy anything from you, just mm-hmm. so you know. We we just took the meeting, you know. Because just to be nice. It'd be basically, yeah. yeah. And we said, that's completely fine. Let's talk about you. And two hours later, that company was basically telling us, you know what, there's actually a couple of things that you you do that we do want. And we want to talk to you about that, right? So I would say that external piece really has to do with not just listening, but giving people the opportunity to be heard. Mm-hmm. And that is something that so many of us, me personally as well, we have failed in over and over again. We listen, we pretend like we listen, yes. but we don't hear it, right? And it kind of goes back to what I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, interest and position, right? If, uh, again, I like to put things into practical terms. So when we as an AMC reach out to an appraiser and say, 
hey, the lender would like you to look at this comp and this issue and this reason. You know, can you please comment on that? Yes. Not all, many appraisers are great at coming back and helping us with that, but there are some that will say, you know what, just get very defensive. I right? I don't want to look at that. They are nuts. You're nuts. Why are you asking me to do this? Right. Or you're trying to question me or whatever. Understandable response. It's a natural response because we're humans, right? Mm -hmm. We, as people, we don't like being told that we were maybe, maybe we're wrong or maybe we missed something. It's, it's a painful thing for anyone, no matter how experienced and how patient to hear that. And so our reactions are sometimes visceral. The thing I would encourage in a situation like that is try to understand the interest behind the position. The position is, okay, they want you to look at this comp and this issue and comment on X. Yes. Why are they asking for that? Instead of instantly becoming defensive, right? You might ask the AMC or whoever is giving you that that request, okay, can, I'm happy to try to help. Can you explain a little bit more what's concerning them? Yes. But I promise you 90% of the time, the AMC that you're working with hasn't done this either. <laughs> they, they, they're they just <laughs> taking something from the lender and re- repackaging it and throwing you, a, throwing you a pile of flaming pile of crap over the fence and expecting you as the appraiser to deal with it. Oh, I hear you. It's totally okay. And I want everyone to hear this. It's completely fine. And you should come back with a nice response saying, I'm happy to do this and help you, but I can't, can you help me understand what's concerning them? And what, what I find, and I've instructed my own team on this as well, and they're 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 now in that mode where when we get a request like that from a lender, yes, we don't just copy and paste it and throw it over to the appraiser. We actually interact back with the lender and say, okay, we're happy to help. Can you help us understand what's going on here? Does underwriting have a concern? Yes. Is it maybe the real estate agent is pushing back and your LO is just trying to save a deal and look good and but but those have different responses, right? Very much so. And underwriting is pushing back. There is a totally different set of responses and different mindset going into that response. If it's an LO or a realtor working together and they're the ones pushing back, okay, maybe it does or doesn't have the same level of significance. Yes. Or or well thought out, you know, pushback. Maybe it's not even great, and and it should just be pushed back no matter what. But again, if you know that that's what's happening. You can help the lender in the AMC and you can say, listen, I can understand that there's a realtor back there that's really concerned or they're thinking that it should be this, not that. And it's going to help you in your response to not to understand that. And instead of coming back and saying, this comp is completely out of the area and I don't know what people are thinking in terms of sending us this, but it's, it's a ridiculous match. <laughs> and by the way, I've seen comments like that. In, in oh, yes. Return memos, right. It's, it's kind of, it's snarky it just kind of or you could say you know what we we understand that there's a concern around you know the potential value of the home based on that comp here's why this comp is was not selected you know and and to be able to just do that in a in a way that that reflects that you actually listen to it and you're explaining it in a rational way there's a way to write as you know email email is a good example it's a, there's it's a sucky way of communicating you can reply back and i've done it plenty of times and I sound way worse and way terse than I even meant it to be. It just comes across that way. Yes. It's the, same, the same thing is true of our written responses. If you can help a lender or an AMC with your response of saying, look, I'm happy to help you. Help me understand why this is being asked. Is Very much so. It could be something as serious as an underwriter has a problem. It could be something as customer facing as a realtor or or the 
the seller is angry and you, we need to help ameliorate that. And it could just be, you know what? We've got a processor underwriter looking at an SSR that says there's an overvaluation risk. Yeah. has no idea why, because it's not on the SSR. Does <laughs> it? has no idea to t- how to tell you that. Yes. You know, they're just basically throwing something back at you and saying, can you address this? They've got some data and product that's given them an indication. Right. They just want to make sure that there's something, there's more support so that there's maybe or in the they ran or whatever. And all they're looking for is just a comment from the appraiser to mm-hmm. help them cover it. That's it. Right. And it's a fascinating one, Mark. It's, it's one of those, again, that's kind of that inside that, uh, as you will, in, inside a, a playbook that a lot of people in the profession don't necessarily see. And it's helpful to get that insight. One other yeah. thing, just being you know mindful of your time, and I, I appreciate that you're going to run a little longer what we had talked about, but two remaining questions for you. The one is, you have taken an approach in your career that is, uh, in some cases, it was forced, in other cases, because like, you know, acquisition or startup goes bust, but you've continually sought out opportunities and then opportunities have sought out you that have put you in front of different communities, but expanded your skill set and expanded your impact and influence. What's really kind of been your guiding principle for being open and willing to change roles and change companies? Because that's something a lot of people aren't comfortable with. They don't have that fluidity of movement across firms. They're kind of like, I'm here and I'm staying and I'm not changing. And you talked before about, you know, don't be stodgy, don't be stuck, be willing, be open. But what else do you like? What else can you kind of point to? Because you've had a you've had a very interesting career. Yeah, that's uh, that's an understatement. But yeah, <laughs> I think and, and, and it's a hard question to answer because it's the, the answer is different for everybody, right? I'm a risk taker by nature, okay. and I like pushing the envelope. Mm, got it. And I've had to ameliorate that over the years as I married someone who is the complete opposite. You too, huh? All right, that's yeah. just me. So, <laughs> and then when kids come along, that complicates it even further. Oh, yeah. So now, you, now you're not just thinking about yourself, but you're thinking about them. So there have been times in my career, and I know that I'm not going to be there forever, but I sit there and suck it up for a few years because I know, for example, that my wife needs the stability, right? She needs she needs to see the paycheck coming in. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, you, you just, you do your job, do it well, don't complain and move on. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would, I would say that has helped me sort of make those moving decisions is back to that whole heart thing. Yes. Um, as part of becoming a better human and growing, one of the things that you do is it changes who you are as well. When I was younger in my career and I was unhappy at some place, mm-hmm. I was one of the people who would uh, I was about to say a B word. I would, I would, I would. You would be vocal. Would How about together that? B word, that B word. The B word is better. I would get together in the break room and vocalize my displeasure. Yes. How stupid this manager was. How crazy were we to do this? Sure. The company was so nuts. Why are we, you know, nobody knows what they're doing. I was one of those people that contributed to the fire. Got it. Because it just sort of made me feel good. And also it's what people do. It's just natural, right? Later in my career, I've become more cognizant of the impact that has on everyone, including myself. Because I didn't know that at the time, but it was actually not cathartic. It was it was actually making me more bitter hmm. to keep cycling that over and over again. It was getting unhealthy and it, was, it became unhealthy, right? I've now looked at it as saying, okay, if, if I really want out of a place because yes. it's not conducive or healthy for me, do I help or hurt myself and others by contributing to the unhealthy? Answer is probably not. So that's where I can quietly start looking at other opportunities, setting myself up for the right one, and then 
trying to leave well. I've left badly before. I have. And I've, again, learned lessons from those. I've also left well before. And it is better to leave well than it is to leave badly. Uh, it, it is. There are, and and there, leave on good terms, not bad. And even if you think that wherever you're leaving is just one of the worst run places ever, there's no value in you going out there and throwing grenades on the way out the door. That's an employer really isn't because there will always be, especially in an industry like ours, which is pretty small, there's always that chance you run into those people again. So I would definitely recommend that as a, as kind of a, uh, you asked about how do you change and how do you move? Yes. It's about keeping yourself open, but it's also about understanding that how you behave in the moment dictates where and how you will move. So from from my perspective, it's yeah, take risks, but try to be a good person while you're while you're doing it. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And of course, we have uh, kind of our, our wrap up question we like to ask everyone, and that is, you know, what are you excited about in the industry right now? What are you looking ahead to? I mean, you all, I mean, your technology background, you're a technology forward company, but I'd love to hear it in, in your words, whether it's about like life at large or the appraisal industry particularly, or the multifaceted solutions um, delivered by InCenter. But uh, what would you like to share, Mark? Yeah, I, I think um, I have a lot of positive expectation for the next few years. Mm-hmm. I do think we, we've all been saying that the appraisal industry is changing or due for a change. And we've been saying it for the last number of years. But I will say that now, here in this year in 2023 and 24 and 25, yes, it really is going to be a pivotal change, right? And it's going to change how how appraisers do things, and it's going to change the way appraisers do things. Here is my encouragement on that, it's, and what I, I hope to see the industry do. First of all, as uh, it, as most people know who who follow me or follow our company, we we believe that virtual inspections are a major part of the future of the industry. Got it. Virtual. We think that virtual technology, where allows appraisers the ability to maintain their control over inspections, mm-hmm. to see and view what's happening at a property in real time, to understand its condition, and to be able to analyze it without having to necessarily drive there. We are not one of those companies that says that's going to replace everything. There's a time and a place for a physical inspection, and there always will be. But we believe that the virtual inspection has the most growth potential mm-hmm. for an appraiser because as a practitioner, right, you, you want to be able to not only value a property, but you you want to be able to see what you're valuing and, yes. and, and what you're inspecting. So we've been working hard with, you know, and, and the GSEs deserve credit for this. Uh, in my view, they've allowed the desktop appraisal to become permanent policy. Um, they've allowed the use of virtual technology for those options. And uh, Fannie Mae most recently here allowed the 1004D completion repair to become a virtual. So you can do it remotely with virtual tech. Yes, that's awesome. That's just the beginning of the mountain for more appraisal types being done this way. And so we're really excited about that and what other agencies will do to allow appraisers to do these things virtually. I do think that the the advent of the hybrid is another area oh, that appraisers should look at. I understand a lot of the trepidation that appraisers have, have come out with in the industry on that. Yeah. I think some of it is warranted as well. And I don't believe though that that if appraisers stay out of the hybrid, that it will become better. I think appraisers need to also look at the hybrid yes. and say, here, how can I use it in my business? So again, just because someone hands you a, a property data report, right, doesn't mean you have to do it. 
right? But you might be able to look at it and say, you know what, for this particular property, there's enough data here and enough corroboration that I feel okay doing it. And I'll just put my limiting assumptions on and, and go do it. And there are others where you can say, this one, I think I'd rather appraise it, uh, you know, fully. I would rather go visit it. I would rather do a virtual or something, but I'm not going to do this one as a property data. It's your choice, right, as an appraiser to do that. But I think appraisers should have openness on all of these things. The, these, these options are all options created for appraisers to use. And my feeling on technology is pretty you know, pretty clear technology is like water. It flows and finds its own level, right? And you can either be in its way or you can get run over by it, really. Um, and that, that's the way it has always been with technology. So I encourage appraisers right now, these next one to three years here, this is the time for all of you, no matter your level of experience, to embrace these technologies and make them your own. Because if you, if you try them and use them and you come back to us as providers and you say, you know what, this worked well and this did not work so well, right? <laughs> or, or this could be better, yeah. you're actually then becoming part of the solutions and you're creating the, the, the solution uh, alongside of us and making it something that's going to actually serve you and serve the industry. If the stance, on the other hand, is I'll never do this, never use it, don't want to see any sort of change, that creates a, you know, that paradigm where you can see other solutions come in to essentially go around what is perceived as you blocking it. You know, whether, whether that was the horse and the buggy all the way to now, right? It's, it's always the same. So my encouragement is to appraisers is embrace the technologies that are coming. Learn how they fit. Help the industry apply how they fit, right? And You'll have people like me, and there are many others, who have an interest in listening to you and helping you get a better solution on the table. We can't do it without you. I One advantage that I had is because I didn't have that kind of growing up in the appraisal profession we talked about, I didn't come into this with a bias. Yes. Saying, I think it should be done this way, so I'm going to design a solution around that. What we did is we listened to appraisers. We said, what do you want? Okay, let's try and create a solution that does what you do. And then, okay, do we do we hit the mark or miss the mark? We missed it? Okay, what can we do to make it better? And I think the best providers are going to in the industry are going to keep that mindset of, hey, appraisers, tell us how to make it better. Feedback and tell us which parts of it need to be changed, which parts you're not comfortable with, what could be done to make it better. And I think if you're part of that solution, it's going to bode well for the future of appraisals, but also your involvement in it. You know, I, I think uh, that's, again, a, a great example, not just in this particular industry, but in life. And I think you uh, coming out of technology background, moving through sales organizations, the importance of, of applying all those together, uh, great uh, reference all the way back to, I think it was in 2000 when Clayton Christensen published uh, Crossing the Chasm. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, that book uh, was such an, I mean, it's a bit of a PhD kind of read, but it was a phenomenal book that talked about the same things you touched on, whether it was going back to uh, the precursor to um, mobile being, MLS being mobile and being actually accessible on your device, whether it was that matching technology that preceded MySpace, that preceded Facebook. You know, you look at it now and say, change is, is not definitely going to happen. You know, I have my own opinions about it. That's my point. And, you know, in these kind of conversations isn't about what's my opinion for change or what's the best change. It's about what have other people done in their career? That is a path. It's a journey that we can learn from for ourselves, either in this industry or 
to choose to get into this industry or how to yep. take this industry forward. And you know that's why I intentionally reached out to you because you are one of those individuals who wasn't born, as another guest had said in season one, at the dumb end of the tape measure. You're like, look, I got, <laughs> I got no connection to it. You know, I came through technology, you know, to uh, global sales through title and settlement and um, appraisal, and then you know to where you're at now. So I very much appreciate that. And so I, I come away with a sense of uh, encouragement from where you're looking at. And what would you, when you, if you had to forecast, and we won't hold you to it, would you say that we've seen most of the change that's going to happen in the profession? Or have we seen just a little of the change that's ha- happen, happening in the profession? I put it in the middle middle of those two extremes. Okay. I, I think we are well on the way to change in the, in the profession. You know, I, I think we all know that some of the, the demographics are driving some of that as well. But there's also just the fact that I think we all need to remember this in the back of our minds. There's something like 60 to 80 million Gen Z coming of age right now and Generation Alpha is right behind them. Gen Z is coming into the workforce mm-hmm. and you're going to have millions and millions of potential property owners that, frankly, the mortgage industry right now is is looking at how do we scale so we can even handle that ball. Sure. Right. And what was the, the numbers that uh, the Freddie and Fannie have shared pretty consistently is that in the six years, you know, 40,000 appraisers basically doing all of the Fannie and Freddie work nationally, yes, right? Yes. And, and now we're seeing a decline in that as some, some of the retirements come in. But on the positive, we're seeing more trainees than we ever have, which is really great. So back to my prediction on virtual inspection technology, mm-hmm. that's, I'm really excited about the trainee aspect of that, of experienced appraisers helping their trainees uh, get experience more quickly without having to necessarily visit the home alongside of them. That's already happening now with technology. Um, in addition to that, I think Perio is, has, has a, another potential to help. Mm-hmm. But all of this is going to underpin, you know, a lot of these changes. And got to understand, not not everybody is doing change the same way. No, not at all. So what you'll see out of HUD and VA are probably going to be very different from what Fannie and Freddie does. But just back to the the, the core profession. Um, I'm going to leave you with an analogy as a musician. I'm a musician. So. Oh, I didn't know that. How good are you? Are you on, will we uh, see you on America's Got Talent? Not on, I, I don't know. Oh, right. uh, but but uh, certainly at, at Val Expo, if they do Appraisers Got Talent, then we'll see. But um, <laughs> hey, that was pretty fun that year when we saw That's that. That's good. I still remember Danny Regalado playing sax. It was so nice. much fun to watch him do that. <laughs> but... <laughs> but um, but from the, but from the standpoint of of a musician, okay, core skill set for me being able to play a piano, okay. I have there are synth, synthesizers and then there's all sorts of other instruments to play music on, right? But music evolves over time. So when I back in the early two thousands, mid two thousands, I'm playing in a set. We didn't have backing tracks and a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Creating noise, yes. or it was basically. It was old school. It was, it was it was whoever was on stage playing whatever. That's your sound, okay? That's your sound stage. That's your sound stage right there. Now, you know, if I go play in in certain venues, there's like a an iPad running fifteen different tracks of of background music and and pads and effects and whatever, and then we're all playing over that and we're all playing to a click. Yes, okay, that's fine. That means the music sounds different and it's more full. Mm-hmm. But does that actually change what has to be done? underneath to make uh, you know to make the song feel alive and sound dynamic no you still have to have a musician playing the keyboard or playing the bass or playing the guitar because that's where the life of that song is is in the live play 
not all the backing tracks that are making noise in the background, but it's the actual musicians, right? Yes. That and what they're doing that actually make you want to pay for a ticket to walk in and see that that concert. So the same thing is true in my view of the appraisal profession, right? You guys are like a musician. You have the core skill set to bring valuation to a property problem. How that gets done in terms of gathering data and inspections and everything else, there's going to be lots of different ways to do that. But the core value that everyone needs that people want to see, and this is also another encouragement to appraisers, don't underestimate your value to a lender. I hear a lot of talk about, oh, they, they want to replace appraisers. Appraisers, you know, will never, you know, they'll, they'll be doing this on a computer soon. You know what? Honestly, outside of all those data tools, they, they need you for your experience and for your opinion, but they also need you because you're a partner to them, right? Lenders want to be able to say, I didn't just make this up. A professional property appraiser obtained, you know, the value or the value range for me, and we counted on their expertise to do it. I think the industry is not going to give that up, just being very candid with you. And as the risk environment increases, as potential recession sets in and, and then we come out of it, you're going to see a lot of the major lenders and servicers and banks still come back around to, we want an appraisal in this transaction. And there's reasons for that. It Now, it may be, may be a different kind of appraisal, right? Of course. In some cases. Maybe it's a hybrid, maybe it's a desktop, maybe it's a full appraisal, maybe it's whatever, all three. But-, but you are still going to be part of this process because they need you. So don't underestimate your value. Have a positive outlook on what you can contribute because you're going to be contributing for years and years and years to come. Well, Mark, again, we just want to say thank you for your perspective. Thanks for sharing a little bit of your journey, fascinating as it is, as you said, uh, you know, coming in from a whole different perspective. You just want to get an accounting job and here you are <laughs> far, far from that. Far, far from far it. from it. But I was honored to be on here. Uh, been great getting to know you, Michael, and uh, obviously just love what you're doing here with this podcast. And and I hope it was was. I hope there's some nuggets in here that were helpful for your listeners. I uh, I would say yes, but uh, we'll allow the feedback from the community to do that. We're grateful for the so much feedback of people saying, "Hey, I heard something that was interesting for me. I shared it with a peer, and peers are like, I don't even remember who shared it with me. Actually, a couple people did. So." We encourage you to continue to do that. And as we have here with Mark, we seek out perspectives and opinions that uh, you know you may not get an opportunity to connect with, but through the power of technology, another way we could be doing these podcasts. So thank you again, both Mark and to all of our listeners and all of those um, who are you know doing what they do to continue to uh, strengthen the industry and, and both bring in new talent, whether that's brand new or people like Mark who came in much later in life and brought uh, more opportunity for the future. And I think uh, my personal opinion on all this is I think the appraisal profession could do what the accounting profession has done. And over the years, they've only minted more and more and more CPAs, not less, less and less. And the main reason is because they continue to add more value to the clients um, and they, they expand the scope of how they define what they do. So I'm really encouraged by this. I come away with a lot of ideas. Uh, Mark, I want to say thank you for that. And everybody have a great week until our next episode. Thank you here from Parusings, the power of values. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Parusings, appraisers on purpose. We hope you enjoyed learning from the amazing life paths and achievements of our guests. Don't forget to like us on LinkedIn and other podcast channels to hear more from appraisers and valuers regarding their life and their work. 
If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us a message on LinkedIn and we'll be sure to get back to you. Thanks again for listening, and until we're together again for the next session of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose, Create the Change That You Seek.